Kia ora koutou and welcome to Tahuhu Korero, a podcast and blog that shares the history work of students and staff at the University of Auckland and the aim of improving the accessibility and inclusivity of the study of history. Kia ora koutou and welcome to the podcast. If you're new here, it's nice to have you here and if you're Returning from having listened to a couple before, it's nice to have you back. My name is Michaela Salway. I am a master's student here at the University of Auckland. And today is a very, very exciting podcast. We've done a lot of history with um, lecturers here at the university. We've also branched out to Auckland University of Technology, talking about women in computer science history. But now we're branching a little bit further to a professor from America, which is absolutely amazing. So firstly, what I'll do is I will introduce Katie again. She's here. (laughs) Thanks for coming. (laughs) But who we have here as a guest is Professor Janet M. Davis. I'm just going to read a short little thing that I was given because I feel like it sums her up very nicely. So Janet M. Davis is a distinguished teaching professor of American studies and history at the University of Texas in Austin. She has written extensively in the areas of U.S. cultural, social and environmental history, popular culture, animal studies and modern South Asia. Her award-winning books and articles have been supported by fellowships from the National Endowment of the Humanities, the American Association of University Women, and the University of Texas at Austin. She is much sought after as a public intellectual in the United States, with her opinion pieces published in the New York Times, Washington Post, CNN, Newsday, and the Smithsonian Magazine, which I think is absolutely awesome. I've never been to the Smithsonian, but I am, yeah, definitely wanting to go there. She also regularly works as a public humanities consultant for film, television, festival, and museum projects. One cool thing that we were just discussing before we started is that in 2018, she appeared in a four-hour nationally televised series on the history of the American circus on the PBS program American Experience, which is actually available on Netflix if you want to go check it out. So, Janet, thank you so much for joining us here today. Would you like to maybe just... Say a couple of words about yourself. I know I've kind of just talked a lot about you, but thank you so much for joining us, basically. Oh, Kayla and Katie, thank you so much for having me here. This is just such a wonderful venue, and I'm really thrilled to be here. It's just been a fantastic, generative visit to New Zealand, and your intellectual camaraderie has made it really so much fun for me here. So thank you. Thank you. We had the pleasure of hearing... Janet speak at the recent ANZASA conference, which was held here at the University of Auckland. Katie and I presented on some research that we'd done, but hearing these amazing people from America, which I feel like, yeah, we haven't really experienced that here. Maybe it's just the scene that's being a medieval historian. I don't hear much (laughs) about this, but it was really cool having so many people here and listening to our research, and then we got to hear about what you guys were doing. So, Uh, We're going to be speaking a little bit about Janet's research, but we're also going to be delving into the side of public history, which is more along the lines of what we've been doing. I think the first time, Katie, please correct me if I'm wrong, but the first time we kind of heard about this properly, or at least studied it, was in a postgrad paper. We didn't really talk about public history in undergrad. And so this new medium that we're doing with the podcast and the blog is quite exciting, I think. So let's, I think, yeah, let's start off with your research, hear a little bit about what you've been doing and who you are as a researcher and then we'll get into the the public history side of it. So I guess if you could sum up your research or your research area, what specifically has it centered on? 
So my research is pretty far flung in a lot of ways because I'm kind of broadly interested in American popular culture, social movements, animals and their influence and entangled relationships with people across time and also thinking about these larger environments in which all of these social and cultural formations occur. And my interest in American history, though, is not just in the United States as a political entity, but looking really more comparatively and transnationally at America and the world. So all of my work has had some transnational dimension, and I just can't help it because it's just how I think. <laughs> That's allowed. <Yeah. laughs> I've just tutored a paper on global history, and I've, I, I guess yeah. in medieval history it's quite... Uh, Isolated? Isolated yeah, is a good yeah, word to put it. And yeah. looking into global history and how interconnected the world became and how sometimes it's Ooh. actually hard to look at countries in isolation now because of the influences from the rest of the world. So Yeah, with yeah. globalization, it's hard to really study any one country without looking yeah. at its links to other places. Yeah. It's so true. So, you know, even like thinking about the American circus. So this mm. is a... This is a pop cultural form that really grows in the United States mm. as a kind of metaphor in a way of how the nation is growing. Mm. Um, it's initially, it's an English import in the early Republic in the 1790s. And then it grows into this monstrous institution mm. that travels by railroad, has big tops that seat over 10,000 people. It becomes wow. something that's distinctly American, and it grows as the nation grows. Mm. But, you know, one would think, oh, well, that's an American story then. But it's not because so much of the talent comes from other countries, and mm. it's dependent upon kind of global flows of capital, transportation networks, mm. and these circuses toured in other countries. So mm. it's a fundamentally transnational institution. And the same thing is true of studying animal welfare and the social movement that emerges in the United States really in institutional form after the American Civil War. It starts in the streets of New York and Philadelphia and Boston and Chicago and San Francisco and Dallas, but it quickly becomes something that is also transnational as animal welfare activists take their ideas about animal kindness and American civilization abroad as missionaries, as politicians, as teachers, you name it. So even this movement that starts out very locally, even though it has connections to antecedents in England mm -hmm. and other countries that have animal welfare laws before the United States does, it's still something that you know takes root in a particular setting but becomes transnational very fast. So that's really, you know, I I just constantly am thinking in these kind of larger registers. Mm -hmm. Just slightly off topic question. Yeah. Did you watch The Greatest Showman? I did. Did you like it? I feel like with so much knowledge about the circus, like, how did you find it? Okay, so I'll tell you. I think that as a movie, it's mm. totally fun. It mm. has totally stomping rhythms. You don't want to dance. The synchronization with circus acts and, you know, all of the energy and earworms of the yeah. music, you know, mm. they still go through my head. Yeah. But you know what? As a work of history... 
it's not really very accurate. And I don't think it intended to be. Yeah. You know, I think, you know, Hugh Jackman, he says, hey, <laughs> you know, this is what it is. It's a celebratory kind of, you know, spectacle of P.T. Barnum. But it's really in name only. Yeah. Um, you know, some of the names of the characters are people that do exist historically, but they're very different than what the mm. movie portrays them to be and Barnum himself being very different as well. So, you know, on the one hand, I will say this about Barnum as kind of, you know, in dialogue with the movie, he did have this kind of exuberant, mm. celebratory sense of fun that I think the movie captures, but otherwise it's it's very different. I think we, that's kind of a conversation we had in our postgraduate classes last year when we talked about you know, public history and the different mm. ways you can do history is like, if it's not claiming to be an authentic history of, right. you know, the circus, yeah. mm-hmm. then it's okay. But it's a problem if it says, oh, this is the real history of what happened and then it has flaws. Do you know what I mean? Like yes. I think yes. even if it's like, even if it's not portraying the idea of saying, oh, you know, we're trying to show this history, but people who might not recognize that and see, oh, it's based on a true story, which means it's, history and that people who might not know the definition with that could yeah. possibly get confused because I mean I was not going to watch it because I was like no it's not historically <laughs> accurate yeah. but then because I'm a part-time music teacher on, yeah. on the side and I ended up having to teach the songs because obviously everyone is obsessed with them <laughs> they and I was like <laughs> to be honest I've heard the song so many times I pretty much know the movie I might as well <laughs> yeah. watch it and I was I don't know like I felt like it was really cool but at the same time I just have this constant stream of words in the back of my mind saying but what's this show it's like Schindler's List we had to study for last year and I thought the movie was heartbreaking but it ended Mm -hmm. with Schindler as the hero Mm -hmm. and and of course he did some amazing things but then Mm -hmm. we also had to read the book and hearing how things ended up with his wife and so many other things like he was quite a tragic person at the same time which the movie doesn't I guess that gets more into the public history side of it but like what's the point of movies and what are they trying to show and how much can they show because there's so much restriction right yeah and it used to be it's ultimately entertainment right yeah yeah and and also I think you know the the one of the potential I mean it's both a kind of blessing and a curse with the cinematic (laughs) format you know storytelling is of course the at the center and oftentimes stories involve singular characters to propel a narrative forward and so Schindler being the hero Mm. um, P.T. Barnum as this kind of unilateral force in American history you know the it it, it tends to flatten the kind of nuance and complexity Mm. that really exists so on the one hand that can be a problem if that's what we expect history to be but on the other these are cultural productions that are watchable, compelling, mm. and I think for interested audiences, what they do is they beckon you to think and yeah. explore deeper. Yeah, and, you know, so just as a kind of a side note, when I was nine years old, I watched um, the British production Masterpiece Theater. This is really when I realized, okay, I'm probably going to be a historian when I grow up because... The, it's nice to know uh, that you realized it at nine. Yeah. Well, took me till 18. I took some detours <laughs> along the way. <laughs> it took me a long time to get to my graduate work, so that's a whole other story. But um, 
the thing was is that, so I was watching Masterpiece Theater, and it was The Six Wives of Henry VIII. Mm. And it's funny because now as a, you know, many, many decades later, going back and watching that same series, I realized just how austere and ultimately primitive the production values were of that particular series. But, you know, in 1973... I didn't know any better <laughs> yeah. because that's what TV was like back in those days. Yeah. You hear like the the hum of all of these different pieces of equipment in the background just going, you know, and but mm. again, nine or ten years old, I didn't notice that stuff. Yeah. It was about the story. It was about yeah. this king who was this, you know, who becomes a kind of tyrant who's married six times and, you know, who leads the Reformation in England and it's just this you know, and the, the costumes and all of the kind of pageantry, all of that together, you know, really is compelling narrative. And so it got me really interested. Mm. And I read all sorts of books about Henry VIII and the Six Wives and about English history of that period. Mm. So even though the series itself wasn't fully historically accurate. And then we can talk about the Tudors, which comes out, you know, decades later with a, um, you know, with a star as um, Henry VIII who doesn't even have his red hair or the same beard or even physically looking like him, but it's great storytelling. Mm. Jonathan Rhys Myers, I think, is the star of that particular production. But in any case, these things help unlock doors to yeah. further discovery. So I think they're really valuable in that regard. Mm. You say that you got interested in history at about age nine. So when did you, I guess, decide what area of history you really liked? Like, I don't know, the, the American side of it, the cultural side, and then the animals enter into it. Like, <laughs> where did this happen, I guess? Well, when? Yeah, yeah so, so again, many detours occurred in this evolution of who I am <laughs> as a scholar and as a historian. So in high school, I actually didn't really like history all that much because, you know, the kind of classic cliche in yeah. American mythologies of one of my history teachers was the football coach. He basically had us do multiple choice tests. There was no room for historical analysis. I did have some yeah. good high school teachers. I shouldn't say that, but <laughs> but several of them were really, you know, really was about memorization. Yeah. And that was it. No analysis. And it was all kind of top down driven by politics and presidents across yeah. time. So I thought it was pretty boring. Yeah. <laughs> but when I got to college, so I thought I'm going to be a literature major because I and I still love literature to this day or psychology. So it's really exploring. But then what happened was that in my sophomore year, first semester, I took a history class and it was an early modern European history class. And it was so great. Professor Carl Wiener screaming across the lecture stage. He had a very animated style that his colleagues two floors below could hear you know, <laughs> because he was such an animated lecturer. But I was spellbound. He gave whole lectures on bread as a way to understand social hierarchies. And, you know, and later as I learned, okay, he, then I read some of the same works and like, okay, I know where he got this from. But at the same time, it was so exciting to kind of imaginatively place myself outside of my own time period yeah. into the lives of other people in the past. And so that got me hooked. And I majored in history. 
And I also went to India when I was in college and during my junior year because I really had no clue about Indian culture, Indian society, and I thought, I want to just go without any sense prior knowledge. And so I did have a semester of prep before I actually went on the program. But living in India really got me thinking transnationally about the United States. Mm -hmm. It was a very, you know, very difficult time over in India, not for me personally, but this was the year, this was 1984, that um, Prime Minister Indira Gandhi was assassinated. And also it was the year in which the multinational um, <clears throat> company Union Carbide, there was a great, horrific environmental disaster at Bhopal, India. So these two events also got me thinking a lot about history, about divisions within society without the you know within the um, also the environment and social change and unrest and I had to do a project as part of my study abroad program and so actually the project was inspired by a piece I saw in the New York Times it was a piece about a group of Indian women who were becoming priestesses which was something that was actually historically prohibited by the Vedas these ancient texts but there was a local priest in the town that I was living in, in Pune, who's actually working with women and teaching him, teaching them the Vedas. And I thought, what is going on here? So I actually interviewed a lot of the participants. I interviewed the priest, and it got me digging into understanding what was going on. On the one hand, this was a movement that seemed to be incredibly progressive. Like, here are women doing this kind of work that had been forbidden. But on the other hand, it was also part of a growing kind of cultural nationalism in India by which women were seen and felt to be the kind of conduits for proper Hindu stewardship. So raising good Hindu sons by good Hindu mothers. And this is right at the moment that the Bharatiya Janata Party is really taking shape and becoming a nascent political force in India. The Congress party was still very much in charge at that time, but this is a real harbinger of the future because today, Narendra Modi is now the leader of India. He just won re-election by a substantial majority and the BJP is in power. And the kind of caste politics that are very much a part of this Hindu nationalist vision um, are very problematic in terms of a culturally pluralistic society. So it's really, it's like, wow. Of course, I didn't know any of that at the time yeah. back in the 1980s, but what it gave me was a real taste for research mm -hmm. and how much I enjoyed it. Having said that, I got back, wrote a senior thesis, which was required at my college, Carleton College, and I wrote about a huge topic, 200 years of Indian history, looking at art and architecture <laughs> during the British imperial period. And how long was this supposed to be? <laughs> about 50 to 75 pages. And so, oh my. <laughs> it, and I got to do primary research. Wow. Um, I had a very, very new first generation Macintosh home computer. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that actually died just as I was oh, paginating my document because oh, no. it was before I turned it in. So I had to rewrite parts of it that day frantically. But in any event, 
But it was a really, again, it was so exciting to do this research yeah. and make kind of an analysis of how art and architecture serve imperial projects. Mm. But at the same time, Indian artists and architects pushing back on British imperialism with their own architectural and artistic visions during this era. So again, it got me thinking, did I go straight on to graduate school? No. I actually decided that I needed some distance in my education. So for three years after I graduated from college, I worked as a flight attendant, which was really educational in its mm. own right. It was a great three years of traveling around the world, uh, mostly in the United States, but also some international flying. And it was also a real snapshot into some of the larger things that were going on in America at the yeah. time, because I was visiting so many cities that I saw the processes of deindustrialization and the kind of loss of urban vitality firsthand. Of course, there's been a kind of movement back into the cities in the U.S. now through gentrification, which have their own politics of exclusion that are very much part of that story. But in any event, I applied to graduate school then in my last year of flying, and I was going to go into modern South Asian history because I had studied India, empire in college, and I loved it. Well, I get to graduate school, I decided to go to the University of Wisconsin at Madison, and I had a fellowship to study Hindi, which I was excited to do there. Mm -hmm. And after, you know, was, had done a year's worth of school, and then I was down in Chicago visiting some friends. And the second change occurred in my thinking, because I went with my friends to the Museum of Science and Industry in Chicago, and there was this incredible exhibit on the wall. So near all these pendulums, these bodies, you know, everything science that was in this museum, there was this exhibition of circus parade photographs. And they were from the United States around 1900. And they showed this kind of incredible pageantry and spectacle of thousands of people lining the streets, up in windows on second and third and fourth stories, looking at these processions of circus, animals, people, processing down Main Street and interrupting the flow of everyday life. And the thing that struck me was that the way that those animals were dressed, many of the people who were working with them, mm -hmm. were very much evocative of the same kinds of colonial pageants that I was seeing and studying in India. And so I kept thinking, like, what's going on here? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Tucked it away in my thoughts <laughs> and then went back to India that summer and studied Hindi, came back and thought, I need to take some courses in American history. So I took a class on 20th century American social movements with Linda Gordon, professor of history wow. at Madison. And it was fantastic. And I got to thinking about my circus ideas yeah. and talked to people ultimately decided that I needed to make the switch into American history. And that's what I did. So I had my year and a half, two years of South Asian history as a graduate student, ultimately then got my PhD in American history. And I worked with Linda Gordon 
on my PhD and a couple other members of the department, Professor Tom McCormick, Professor Paul Boyer, Professor Kieran Narayan, and then Professor William Cronin as well. And such great, great input on the project. Um, and it really launched my career writing about the circus. The other thing that was really auspicious and so fortunate was that the University of Wisconsin in Madison is only about 40 to 45 miles away from the world's largest public circus <laughs> archive. That's pretty handy. Isn't it? <laughs> yeah. So that was so handy. And the funniest thing was is that when I was deciding where to go to grad school, I really was tortured about it because I'd spent a good chunk of my childhood in Madison, actually. And I thought, oh, do I want to go to the same, you know, to the school and the place where I mostly grew up? Yeah. And I thought, I don't know, I don't know, you know, maybe go out west, maybe go to Chicago, I don't know. But in the end, I'm really glad I went there because yeah. I don't think that this kind of project could have happened really anywhere else. And I was very lucky that it happened there. And it really defined the trajectory of my career because wow. I was very lucky to get hired you know, pretty much as I was finishing at the University of Texas. And I've been there for 21 years now. And as projects do, new projects grow out mm. of existing projects. So it's really been, I think, you know, quite profound in determining my life's work. So is the animal welfare stuff related to the circus as well, like the treatment of animals in the circus? Is that the connection? Yeah, yeah. So, so that is definitely where the project emerged from because right. as I was researching the circus, I would see snippets periodically about animals at the circus and concern that they were being treated poorly. Mm. And so I thought, aha! I'm, you know, I need to, I need to understand this. And so as I dove into animal welfare history to understand that movement, the thing that I found was actually something, you know, a lot of revealing things. But one of them was that the connection to the circus in the earlier generation of the activists in the movement was actually less strong than it becomes over time. To be sure, it was there. There were people who were very uncomfortable with animals performing in front of audiences. But as a movement, as a social movement, there was not a singular policy directed at the circus really until recent years. But there were flickers of change that were occurring in the movement. And so, first of all, as a historian, then, I asked myself, well, why wasn't it the case? What changed? Part of what's going on earlier on is that the activists who become very, you know, that, that lead this movement are mostly focused on working animals and animals that are being used for food. So, in the 1830s, when there are some early, and even 1820s, some very early state and local laws against cruelty to animals. They're targeting animals that are working, animals that are involved in transporting haulage, 
that's a muscle-powered world, you know. So it's reflecting the conditions, of, you know, in terms of where people see animals. What happens is that as the movement then becomes institutionalized in 1866, is the first SPCA in America, the American SPCA in New York, the movement really takes off from there, in part because what the leaders of that movement did, you know, they're thinking about the Civil War, too. They're thinking about this kind of rupture in ideas about property, about cruelty. The number of horses that the photographic record of the Civil War reveals is, you know, quite yeah. quite compelling and quite vast, and bringing the cruelty of war into people's you know, really into their backyards in a sense, even if they're not near the scenes of the battles because of photographs that one could see on exhibition or purchase. And so what happens is that these folks who form these new societies, New York being the first, it kind of explodes across the country. So by 1900, Every state has some kind of legislation or some society dedicated to animals. And with regard to the circus, it's not so much a focus, in part because these activists, to my mind, believed that these animals at the circus were working just as the animals on the street, you know, right. hauling and transporting people were working. So the ethics of performance in captivity were not quite the issue that they become in later years. Right. So it's, it, it's something that evolves. Now, by the 1920s, in an age in which motorization is rapidly ascending in America, not wholesale yet, I mean, still a lot of farms were, you know, horses were involved in tilling and harvesting, um, you know, across the country, it's really not until after the Second World War that that transition becomes really wholesale. But it's, it's accelerating by the 1920s. And this is the age where you see a new organization called the Jack London Club, which people in the Massachusetts SPCA created in honoring the memory of the author Jack London, who his wife especially was a very strong animal protectionist. And so what this group believed was that any kind of performance you know, should essentially be something that people should boycott. Now, it's interesting that the leaders of this movement, so Francis Rowley, who was the head of the MSPCA in this era, he actually wrote, you know, in pushing for legislation, he said, you know, we have to kind of go for half a loaf now and not a full loaf because we can't push to like ban animal acts at the circus. We can express our consternation that they're there, but we can't ban it because the circus is just too popular. Yeah. It'll diffuse what we're trying to do in so many other areas. So it's something that exists then, but it doesn't really take off, you know, until many decades in the future. Wow. So, you know, it's really the same thing that we always have to kind of remind ourselves as historians is that our sources help us tell our stories. Mm -hmm. yeah. And so that's, it was a story that I didn't expect when I first started. Yeah. yeah. That's so interesting. Wow. Thanks. So you've recently released a book 
called The Gospel of Kindness, yeah. which we heard an incredible talk oh, on just you. the other week. Did you want to maybe speak a little bit about how what you were just talking about yeah. with animal welfare kind of resulted into The Gospel of Kindness, I guess, and maybe a little bit about the book? And, sure. Yeah. yeah. So The Gospel of Kindness took shape after many years of research. <laughs> it always seems to be like that whenever I talk with someone, they're like, this book took years. It did. <laughs> it did. But I'm grateful that it did. I'm grateful I had the space mm-hmm. and the time to let it evolve as it needed to because mm-hmm. this is a book that, in contrast to my book, The Circus Age, and also another kind of hybrid book that I edited and annotated extensively it was the manuscript of a of a person who hung by her teeth at the circus named Tiny Klein. Those projects, mm-hmm. the circus-related work, I knew exactly where to go. Yeah. The archives were really, you know, the huge archive yeah. in Baraboo, Wisconsin, also in Sarasota, Florida. There was another great archive at Princeton University in New York City, and also Library for the Performing Arts in New York City. So those were all places that, like, Boom, you could just really dig in. And the gospel of kindness, by contrast, was a far-flung <laughs> research adventure that <laughs> took me all over the place and took me abroad as well. Wow. So it was a project that you know really comes after so many years of research and so many remarkable kind of coincidental moments. Mm-hmm. You know, this is sort of a personal aside, and then I'll get to the heart of the book. <laughs> but this actually kind of speaks to the book, too, is that the first sustained research trip that I took occurred in the summer of 2006. So just to give you a sense of, you know, this is a long process. The book is published in 2016. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. So I was also a department chair at yeah. the time, you know, so there's a lot of other things, you know, going on. But just before I was supposed to leave for this research trip, I was riding my bike up this steep hill in Austin, Texas, in the heart of summer. Okay, so it's about... 40 degrees centigrade. Yeah, I was just about to say. It's <laughs> very hot. And who should I see as I'm, you know, going up this hill are two stray dogs who look up at me and I look at them and I say, oh, hi, dogs. <laughs> and they just started wagging their tails and they followed Aww. me home. So there they were. They were pretty feral, quite honestly, not housebroken, probably mm-hmm. hadn't lived with people inside ever. And the long and short of it was my out my, my horrified husband said, you've got to be kidding. Because <laughs> just a week later, I was leaving and going to the MSPCA to do my research. <laughs> so every night after I was coming back from the archives, I would call him and listen to him complain about these dogs. <laughs> but they lived with us and have enriched our lives tremendously. And... One of the dogs, he looked like he was an old dog when we adopted him. He was a big, beautiful, blocky fellow. Looked like a combination of a boxer and a lab. Turns out he was mostly a pit bull, actually, because we had his DNA tested. But he looked really old at the time of finding me. Turns out he was probably very young because... He just seemed to get younger and younger as the years went on, <laughs> as his health improved. Mm, yeah. And he passed away just months after my book was published. Really? Wow. His partner, Little Lincoln, was someone who also was seemed young at the time, 
you know, that we found him. But actually then after Duke passed, the, the big guy, mm. got very ill. In fact, was given a month to live. He came down with you know, terrible diagnosis of cancer. And then we were just like, gosh, you know, grief is killing yeah. this little yeah. fellow. He was down to, you know, his weight became bony. And I got him a companion because he'd always lived with another dog. Yeah. And by and by, along with steroidal treatment, he got better. Our vet had given him a diagnosis of one to three months, and that was it. He's still alive. It's been over almost three years now. And he is just the sweetest, gentlest, loveliest old man. So he's been a part of my life throughout the writing of the book. So the book. Back to the book, and we have a menagerie at home too. So, <laughs> in any case, he has a great time. So, the book was something that, in reading and thinking about these ideas about, you know, the circus initially, mm-hmm. and then animals that labor, led me to thinking about why and when this movement begins when it does, the significance of the Civil War, the significance of an industrializing society, of an urbanizing society. And also a society that is increasingly accessing food and meat in far-flung industrial ways. So this is also concurrent with the establishment of institutions like the Chicago Stockyards, opened Christmas Day, 1865. These kind of these huge sites of industrial meat processing, slaughtering, and then processing, and then delivery across the country meant that the conditions by which animals were traveling and being kept, you know, were changing. I mean, meat production is never, you know, something that is that is a comfortable process for people. Yeah. But the distance and the kinds of industrialized processes of production were changing the ways in which these animals were treated. And so this is an important part of this early movement to at least give their lives in transit at least a modicum of care, even though you know it's still incredibly bleak. And the other thing that really comes strongly across for me in researching this movement is how invested the activists were in terms of thinking about children and thinking about the future of the nation, especially in the aftermath of the Civil War, you know, this incredibly horrific rupture in the Union, and how is it going to be rebuilt, and that this gospel of kindness, as they called it, would be essential in rebuilding the Union. And they were very much allied with other movements. And so this is something, too, that I see then is quite remarkable. Their alliances with movements against corporal punishment, movements in favor of temperance, and also civil rights, too, in the kind of broader human concern and also regarding race relations in America. The leaders of the Massachusetts SPCA particularly took a strong stand against racism in America. And 
people of color were involved in the movement in this era. They worked in places in the Jim Crow South to promote kindness towards animals, but also was very much a tacit critique of a system of Jim Crow brutality as well. And so Our Dumb Animals, the publication of the Massachusetts SPCA, contained very explicit condemnations of lynching, of race rioting in America, and segregation as well. So this is a forum in which today we don't tend to see that kind of intersectional concern. Mm -hmm. It's really more about animals. But it's fascinating to launch into this era when so many other social movements were deeply interconnected. Mm -hmm. And so as the United States becomes an empire, as missionaries, you know, which the movement, the missionary movement was something that really expands in the Gilded Age, that many of these activists take ideas about animal kindness abroad with them. So in the pages of Our Dumb Animals, we speak for those who cannot speak for themselves. You see notices written by American missionaries in places like India teaching their students to build birdhouses or to think about their fellow creatures Mm -hmm. and forging relationships with Indian animal advocates too. So it's fascinating how this becomes transnational very quickly. Wow, that's so interesting because, yeah, I think, I don't know if this is just New Zealand, but the SPCA is very much about animal cruelty and it doesn't really expand beyond that. And that's true, I think, across the world. Right. Yeah, Yeah. it's definitely true in the U.S. as well. Well, I even found it so interesting in your talk where you were saying how this bled into children's rights. Yeah. Like, that just blew my mind. I guess that whole separation of, well, the SPCA is just about animals or all of these organizations are just about animals but then the fact that the people who are advocating and policing the Mm -hmm. animal rights ended up policing children's rights because the police wouldn't like could you maybe speak to that because that just blew my mind (laughs) yeah (laughs) yeah I mean again it's this era before the professionalization of social work that you see these interconnections of these movements in ways that today we would think well wow, that just seems extraordinary, (laughs) you know, because we have these very, very well-developed fields of children's advocacy that, again, are solely focused on children, just as animal advocacy tends to be solely focused on animals. But this is an era of tremendous interconnection. And one of the things that, as a researcher, I found so stunning was to dive into the ledgers of these amalgamated humane societies that dealt with animal abuse and child abuse Mm. together. And literally reading these very brittle pages and seeing the ledgers in which you see these entries about a horse being starved. Next entry, four children being starved. Next entry, a dog being abused. Mm. Next entry, children being abused. And just the kind of interconnected world of poverty and inequality that affected 
everyone, mm -hmm. all fellow creatures essentially, yeah. mm -hmm. really embedded in these entries. It's, it's just, it's such a window into the world of the Gilded Age. And then into the progressive era, but again, this is the era of kind of scientific expertise and professionalization in which that split is beginning to take shape. Right. Yeah. So how did that turn into sharks? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, so the shark project is one that is ongoing and Thinking about animals and thinking about animals as historical agents yeah. is something that really comes out of the gospel of kindness, the research process, and trying to think about and write about animals in a way that recognizes their sentience yeah. and also their agency as historical mm -hmm. actors, of course, that don't speak in the traditional ways that yeah. we do or or write historical documents like we do, yeah. but they make themselves known in other ways yeah. through their physical presence, through their bonds of affection with people, yeah. and through their, again, physical presence as biological agents, yeah. both of, you know, thinking about disease and yeah. epidemiology. And so all of these things played a role in thinking about a phenomenon that as a child, I have still since kept turning back to, and here it is. Why on earth was the movie Jaws such a <laughs> huge hit in 1975 when it came out? I watched it. I was completely riveted by it. I'd been long interested in sharks. So here we've got Henry VIII, sharks, <laughs> dogs. And cats and reptiles. I've been interested in all of these creatures over, you know, since childhood. But I remember when the movie came out at, you know, so 1975, I was 11 years old. I really I didn't read the book at age 11, Jaws, but the movie had this powerful impact mm. on all sorts of things. It was a huge sensation. There were mm. stories in the news that just perplexed me about people like racing out of the water beating animals that they thought were sharks. I mean, it was a pandemonium that oh, summer. So I always wondered, what was going on? Why did this happen in yeah. such a hysterical, national kind of frenzy? And later on, I got to thinking about it. So just as I was you know, in the latter stages of finishing the Gospel of Kindness, so these new projects are always kind of brewing as yeah. other projects are finishing, which is certainly the case with everything I've done. And I got to thinking about it. Well, what about the kind of historical moment of the 1970s? Started doing some preliminary research and thinking about this is the year in which the Vietnam War is finally over. Mm -hmm. The last American officials are leaving Saigon at the end of April in 1975. The North Vietnamese are marching across the 17th parallel and reunifying the entire country that has been riven by war since really the 1950s. And I thought that's a big, important part of this story, you know, kind of national anxiety. Who are we? Where are we going? It was also, there were a lot of other things going on. The economy was in rough shape. You know, there had been 
you know, the Watergate scandal was fresh upon us. You know, there were just certain kind of decentering of the American sense of self. So I thought maybe that's it. Well, then I go to the archives. <laughs> Our favorite <laughs> and, place. And, yeah. yeah, and there are archives. So. Peter Benchley, who wrote the novel Jaws, which I, of course, read immediately as yeah. well, and realized this is a very different cultural production than the movie that comes out, and that's a whole other story. It's part of this story. But when I got to the Peter Benchley collection at Boston University's Howard Gottlieb Research Archival Research Center, I was amazed by what I found. And... There, I read, you know, pages and pages of correspondence. I read all the drafts of the novel. And I also read all of the letters that people wrote to Peter Benchley after his novel. And then the movie, which he actually was one of the screenplay writers for. He actually wrote a screenplay for the movie as he was finishing the book, wow. um, Universal Studios bought the rights to the film as he's finishing because they sensed a hit. <laughs> and they immediately scrapped his very, very ambivalent and nuanced and kind of difficult story in favor of streamlining it into a story about a fish wow. terrorizing a town. There's a lot of other social stuff going on in the book, too. So it's really right. interesting as a kind of statement about society yeah. during the 70s. So in any event, as I read through all of these sources over several trips to the archives, what I realized, and this is a totally bad joke, we're going to need a bigger archive. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, we're going to need a bigger boat. In any case, <laughs> indeed, because so many of the people who are writing to Peter Benchley are writing about other historical moments of yeah. encountering sharks. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. for example... An elderly woman writes to Benchley and talks to him about, she says, Dear Mr. Benchley, I greatly enjoyed your novel. I enjoyed hearing about your shark. Now I'm going to tell you about my shark. <laughs> and so she writes to him about a series of attacks in the summer of 1916 on the Jersey Shore that riveted the nation. And she also includes in her account the story of one of her neighbors taking her as a child, she's no more than eight years old at the time, and other neighbor kids to see one of the dead sharks that was killed and put on display amid the frenzy of trying to find the killer. Yeah, and so she talks about this. And that got me thinking like, okay, I have to think about this too. Yeah. And then reading letters that were written by World War II veterans talking about their own encounters with sharks in this very much oceanic war yeah. of World War II got me thinking about the war. Mm -hmm. So the project, in short, has exploded. Yeah. And references to Australia, New Zealand, South Africa, and also to Hawaii. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So thinking about the broader Pacific world and thinking about Atlantic flows as well have gotten me thinking about this broader, more transnational analysis of human shark entanglements over time. Mm -hmm. 
It's going to be an episodic project. It has to be. Otherwise, yeah. it would just be this giant <laughs> BMS that I wouldn't even be able to write. But it is something that will be more situated in the period of history that I tend to gravitate toward. And this is really in the later 19th century to the present. Yeah. And the reason being is that it is in this era that the fundamental point of contact really takes shape that is distinctly modern. It's with the rise of the leisure economy, yeah. and the rise of the beach as a site of leisure rather than solely as labor, that one sees an escalation of these encounters. It's also a story of sanitation because many municipalities would dump rotting offal and other such ickiness into the ocean. Yeah. And of course, who's going to come? The sharks are going to come. Yeah. So that's part of the story. It's a story about war. It's a story about you know, changing labor relations in many respects. It's a story about leisure, as I mentioned, and being out on the beach, displaying the body. And it's a story about the vast and kind of unfathomable relationship that we have to this ocean world mm -hmm. that yeah. is still very much unknown. Yeah. And so technologies are a part of my story, from schooners in the whaling age mm -hmm. and also the age of enslavement, mm -hmm. which is remembered by civil rights leaders talking about the horrors of these slave ships and the sharks mm. that are alongside waiting for the bodies. Mm. You know, there's just this way in which sharks as a point of contact tell us so much about who we are mm. as a society, but also as a world. Yeah. Because one of the things that also is happening, and I think that is important to remember in thinking about kind of the animals themselves mm -hmm. is that sharks are among the world's oldest creatures. They are fish. Mm -hmm. They have been around for hundreds of millions of years. But yet, we're living in an age now in which specific shark species are disappearing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And this incredibly durable animal facing a fate like that is something that is worth, you know, that we have to reckon with. Yeah. It also is a testament to the ways in which regulation actually can be really effective. Mm -hmm. And here's why. Off the coasts of countries that are very scrupulous in their regulatory apparatuses, Shark numbers are doing great. Mm -hmm. It is in those vast spaces of no regulation, essentially, in which finning and yeah. bycatch and all of these practices of industrial fishing, where their numbers are declining. Mm -hmm. And sharks as an order are very sensitive to environmental change. So the loss of reef habitats, yeah. the warming of the seas, these are animals who reproduce slowly. Mm -hmm. They live very long lives. So as an example, the Greenland shark. Within the last few years, Danish researchers have discovered 
that Greenland sharks, the oldest Greenland shark, they estimate with carbon dating, so they're you know pretty mm. accurate in how they are doing this analysis, was 512 years old. Mm. Yeah. Wow. And the youngest was around 270 years old. Wow. So these are sharks that are living off the coast of Greenland in these deep, cold, cold waters. Mm. And here they are as these almost, you know, in our sense of time, living fossils. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. So sharks can tell us so much. And so I'm very interested in species-specific encounters as well mm -hmm. from the deep, pelagic, oceanic white tips that circled shipwrecks and aviation disasters to the very, very versatile bull sharks that can live in fresh and saltwater coast shore. Mm -hmm. You know, they all have very specific points of encounter with people. And it is at those places that this history comes. I guess you also find this juxtaposition between animal rights and, yeah. and this movement to preserve what seems to be right in front of our eyes mm -hmm. and what we take value in, mm -hmm. like pets and, I guess, horses and things that we're constantly encountering versus yeah. something that we fear. Yes. And I guess people wouldn't value as highly because it's not they're not like us. Yeah. yeah. You yeah. can't cuddle them. Right. Exactly. Yeah. You don't want to cuddle right. them. Right. Well, yeah. and, and so this is the thing that's also fascinating. Um, I was recently in Hawaii doing mm. research on sharks. And, you know, reading historical records and looking at art mm. and, you know, the kind of understanding, at least in a preliminary sense, because I have a lot more work to do, but thinking about the cosmological universe of sharks among native Hawaiians and other Polynesian seafaring people mm. presents a very different mm. world of encounter than the one that I grew up in. Mm. And that is also something that I am really eager to reckon with yeah. and to understand because in the world and the historical experiences of Native Hawaiians living, you know, the sea being such an integral part of their lives and their yeah. livelihoods, um, a very different kind of relationship emerges in those yeah. settings where sharks could be amakua, which are guardian spirits of individual families. And yeah. so, you know, a very... I think a world that is one that I want to understand yeah. as part of a fuller kind of understanding. And also the kinds of ways in which Hawaiian cosmologies are connected historically across these trans-Pacific flows too, because um, it's, I'm really am interested in learning more um, about indigeneity and shark thinking here in New Zealand and also in Australia as well. Yeah. yeah. Wow. I've definitely got a newfound appreciation for sharks. Yeah, <laughs> I know, right? I've never thought about them in this way before. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the thing is, too, that's really fascinating is that you see in kind of, again, the technological side of things. So we've got 
ships, we've got gasoline-powered engines, we yeah. have airplanes, we have underwater photography, we have scuba, we have bathing suits. All of these technologies have been points of contact, mm -hmm. in a sense, with these animals. But today, we also have telemetry. So mm -hmm. the act of putting a signal on a shark's fin mm -hmm. that will ping whenever that animal surfaces up to a satellite that tracks its movements and then sends a notification to Facebook or Twitter in a celebrity shark's name, yeah. you can follow sharks <laughs> on this website called O-Shark. So that becomes yet another point of encounter. And it also, when you look at the map, one can see just how close they are to us in yeah. places we don't know that they're there. So it is, you yeah. know, it's fascinating to think, will this help us or will it hurt them? Yeah. People are endlessly fascinated by these creatures, by what we don't know. Yeah. And how they have infiltrated our pop cultural consciousness. Mm. Baby shark. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Yep. That's true. Yeah. yeah. Are you going to reference that in your book? <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. And yeah. a whole range of things. I mean, mm. even when, you know, when the whole in the United States, when the kind of scandal, one of many scandals related to the Trump administration. Mm. But um, the adult film actress Stormy Daniels, yeah. when she recounted her encounter with Trump some years back, there was a fascinating bit about him watching Shark Week and just going on and on about how much he hated sharks <laughs> and saying that they should all die. And he's even tweeted about that, right. you know, subsequently. So there's just so much going on in terms of the popular consciousness and kind of the longer history of what they tell us about themselves, but also about us. Yeah. This is an aside that um, yeah. we tried to incorporate this ACO program into our tutorials this year, yeah. which is kind of like embedding Māori worldviews in our classrooms. Mm -hmm. Did you have this at all? No, they weren't trialing it in global. <clears throat> I tried finding it on my phone because I took a photo of it. And if yeah. I can remember the name of it, I'll send it to you. But there's Great. this kind of like metaphor about um, don't be like the hammerhead shark that, you know, just dies, you know, it doesn't, mm -hmm. it gives up without a fight. You know, mm. be strong or be strong like the hammerhead shark. There's something, yeah. there's some sort of like um, phrase there that I'll see if I can, because it might be I would love to see it, interesting yeah. for you that oh, it's right. the way that it's kind of like, used as a metaphor for, you know, the hammerhead shark for being strong and yes. not giving up without a fight. I think yeah. it, like, after it dies, it moves around a little bit or something like that. Mm -hmm. So they, they use mm -hmm. that as a... Yeah, I'll see if I can find it. I've tried well, to find it on my phone. I've got too many photos of my <laughs> Oh, I'm <laughs> yeah. I know managing our photo data yeah. is a major challenge. <laughs> yeah. yeah so I want to say it before I forgot. Yeah. Yes, thank you. <laughs> so I guess... Though we could talk about sharks on and on and on. <laughs> yeah. And I'm finding it so incredibly fascinating. It gets yeah. also, also like going into the pop culture side of it. Yeah, like, yeah. The amount of movies that I've watched, like Soul Surfer, I don't know if so you've So much. Heard about. Like, right. I was oh, yeah. a speech about Soul Surfer when I was in high school. And like, oh, yeah. The just, Meg. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. Just so many different areas, which I guess you don't think about yeah. it coming into it. Play and then the whole ideas around the fact that 
our ideas changing because now we're seeing a time limit. Right. Whereas before it was like, well, this is hurting us and taking away mm-hmm. our people, so we need to get rid of it. But now yeah. it's facing extinction. Inside. But I, I, yeah, there's just so many but different questions that were just yeah. so interesting to delve into. But yeah. We're sounding a shark podcast. Yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Thank you so much for listening so far. We are actually going to have to stop that there because this was a really long podcast and it is just taking a little bit too long. So rather than making you listen to an hour and a half podcast, uh, we're just going to stop that there and then we will pick it up next time. So make sure to look out for when that one will come out. Thank you so much for listening and we will hear from you guys all soon.